coming up on this episode of Inside the Epicenter. In Jeremiah 31, beginning in verse 1, we read that at that time, declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the peoples of Israel, and they shall be my people. Thus says the Lord, the people who survived the sword, the sword has been a repetitive theme throughout Jewish history, uh, but the people who survived the sword, the Jewish people who have survived all the traumas that life is going to throw at them, they found grace in the wilderness. Israel, when it went to find its rest, and the Lord appeared to the children of Israel from afar, saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have drawn you with loving kindness. Again, I will build you, and you will be rebuilt, O virgin of Israel. Israel makes mistakes. Israel is a sinful country. It's a sin- We're a sinful people. We blow it, and then God deals with us, and then he restores us. It's true about everybody. We are sinners. We are lost. We all, like sheep, have gone astray, but God comes after us, and he draws us out of his everlasting love, and he cleans us up, and he gets us moving again. Welcome to Inside the Epicenter with Joel Rosenberg, a podcast of the Joshua Fund a ministry dedicated to blessing Israel and her neighbors in the name of Jesus. I'm Steve Ryder, executive producer of this podcast, and today we're going to start a series that we're going to spread out over the next few months with five teachings that Joel gave a number of years ago at Calvary Chapel in Albuquerque. Joel titled this series, Critical Issues Facing the Epicenter, and he felt really strongly that these messages are foundational to who we are at the Joshua Fund. So we're going to cover topics like, were the Jews given the promised land? Why does the world hate Israel? Does God love Israel's neighbors? And how can the church bless Israel and her neighbors? Today, we're going to present Joel's message, Are the Jews the Chosen People? We pulled this keynote deep from the Joshua Fund archives, so we hope you enjoyed this message from our founder, Joel Rosenberg. We want to begin tonight this series. Uh, Skip is very gracious to to let me begin tonight, and what we'll do through the next five total services, uh, we'll build a message for each one. Now, as he said, you can't all come back uh, for each one, but we'll have it online and everything so that you can see it. But the focus is these critical issues that are facing the people of the epicenter today. We just had, of course, Prime Minister Netanyahu in the United States all week, uh, meeting with American Jewish leaders, meeting with the Vice President, meeting with the Secretary of State, uh, the UN Secretary General. And his message uh, was pretty clear and sobering. He said publicly and privately that the diplomacy that the world is trying to engage uh, the radical leaders in Iran, not working so much. The economic sanctions that have been passed are having an effect, but not nearly the decisive effect that would be needed to stop Iran from getting nuclear weapons. And so he asked the U.S. administration put a credible military threat on the table. Secretary of Defense uh, Robert Gates said no. So as Netanyahu goes home, the challenge becomes for him, what does his government do? Can they persuade the administration in Washington to step up the actions they're, they're taking to stop Iran? Or at, can he, Netanyahu and his government persuade other world leaders to step up the actions to take decisive steps 
to stop Iran before it's too late? Or will Iran get the bomb? Or will Israel need to strike first? These are critical issues. And today, Israel and the Jewish people are facing a lot of great threats, grave threats, but two of them loom larger than others. First one, as I mentioned, radical Islam, both Sunni and Shia, uh, the threat of Iran getting nuclear weapons, the eschatology, the end time theology of the Iranian leadership that believe we are in the end of days, that uh, the Islamic Messiah, the Shia Islamic Messiah, known as the 12th Imam, that he's coming any moment, they believe. And what's more, the Iranian leaders believe that the way to hasten or accelerate the coming of the 12th Imam is to annihilate two countries. Israel, which they call the little Satan, and the United States, which they call the great Satan. So that's a huge issue. Obviously, it's what I've been writing about and speaking about for the last number of years, this threat of radical Islam. But that's not the only threat that the Jewish people and the nation of Israel in particular face. No less of a threat to them than radical Islam is a threat that I feel compelled to talk about tonight, and that is the threat of replacement theology. See, radical Islam today threatens Jews and Israel with annihilation. Replacement theology threatens Israel and the Jewish people with delegitimization. Replacement theology, sadly, is a central part of what's known as reform theology or covenant theology. And it's the doctrine that, has, that God has rejected the Jewish people. Uh, that because so many Jewish people have historically uh, rejected Jesus as the Messiah, that God is done with them. He's finished with them. There is no special plan and purpose for Jews generally and Israel in particular. And that while Jews and Israel are no longer the apple of God's eye, that the church now is exclusively. That every time you read a passage in the scripture, a promise or a prophecy about Israel, replacement theologians say, no, when you see the word Israel, just replace it in your mind with the church. Now, by God's grace, you who are sitting here tonight are not sitting in a congregation that believes or teaches replacement theology. But many Christians around the world do attend such churches. In fact, the majority of those who call themselves followers of Jesus Christ attend churches that both believe and teach replacement theology. And the controversy over this type of theology is as real as the current headlines. October 23, 2010, a headline in the Jerusalem Post read, quote, Vatican Synod calls for an end to Israel's occupation. At conference on Christians in the Middle East, U.S. Archbishop says, quote, there is no longer a chosen people. The New York Times headline that same day read, bishops at meeting urge Israel to end its occupation of the Palestinian territories. Now, the Times reported, quote, in a final communique at the end of a two-week-long meeting at the Vatican on the plight of Christians in the Middle East, the bishops also urged Israel not to use the Bible to justify its occupation of the land. Apparently, the Times writes, referring to Israel's occupation of the West Bank and Gaza. But in a news conference, the archbishop in charge of the committee that drafted the communique seemed to go further, the New York Times reported, saying the Bible did not justify a Jewish presence in Israel. 
quote, the concept of the promised land cannot be used as a base for the justification of the return of Jews to Israel and the displacement of the Palestinians, this archbishop said. Sacred scripture should not be used to justify the occupation by Israel of Palestine. Now, tomorrow morning in message number two, I'll address this question, were the Jews given the promised land and does it matter? So we'll talk about that more specifically tomorrow. But tonight I want to start with the question, are the Jews the chosen people? And so what? what? Does that even matter? It's an important question, and given recent statements by Catholic leaders, it's a timely one. Sadly, most Catholic leaders, not all, but historically most, have believed and taught replacement theology. But such Catholic leaders are not alone in their belief that God is done with the Jews and that the Jews are not the chosen people. A major Protestant leader, one that you have heard of, I suspect, is also on record with similar beliefs. Quote, the Jews, surely rejected by God, are no longer his people, and neither is he any longer their God. Now, this was not just any old Protestant leader. This was Martin Luther. Luther, in his famous yet repugnant book, on the Jews and their lies, once wrote, quote, first, their synagogues should be set on fire. And whatever's left should be buried in the dirt so that no one can see a stone or a cinder from it. Jewish prayer books should be destroyed. Then the Jewish people should be dealt with. Their homes should be smashed and destroyed. Jews should be banned from the roads and markets and should be drafted into forced labor. Luther also once said, they, the Jews, live by evil and plunder. They are wicked beasts that ought to be driven out like mad dogs. Now, for many, understandably, Martin Luther is a hero of Christendom for leading the Protestant Reformation. But in this critical area, he disastrously and horrifically failed to understand the very Bible that he loved so dearly and wanted everyone to have access to and the very God and Messiah that he longed to follow. Now, why does this matter? Because bad theology has bad consequences. Luther's beliefs were widely held and taught throughout European churches and churches around the world, and not just in the Lutheran church, but in many Christian denominations. Hitler and the Nazi party then picked up on these teachings and used them to justify their final solution against the Jews of Europe. Today, bad theology is also having bad consequences. Many pastors and priests around the world, some entire denominations, are saying that God doesn't love the Jewish people. They're saying that God has rejected the Jewish people. They're saying that Jews don't have a right to live safely, securely, freely in the land of Israel. They're boycotting Israel. They're divesting from Israel. They're giving aid and comfort to governments who are turning against Israel. They're refusing to show Israel and the Jewish people the love of Jesus Christ. They're refusing to share the love of Jesus Christ with the Jewish people. And as such, they are disobeying their Jewish Messiah angering the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and sadly, bringing the potential of judgment upon themselves, either wittingly or unwittingly. Now, look, there's good news. 
And the good news is that there's always been a remnant of true followers of Jesus Christ who understood the word of God, studied the word of God, internalized the word of God, taught the word of God, followed the word of God in Europe, here, around the world, throughout the ages. And they have realized by studying the word of God, by knowing it, from Genesis to Revelation, that God has a great heart for the Jews, that God does love the Jews, that he did choose the Jewish people. And he chose them for some, them, us, as a Rosenberg, for something very special. <laughs> Amen. When my dad came to faith as an Orthodox Jew in Jesus in 1973, he thought he was the first Jewish person since the Apostle Paul who believed that Jesus was the Messiah. He didn't know any Jewish people who believed in Jesus. He had never heard of Jewish people who believed in Jesus. And quite frankly, in 1973, there weren't that many. But that is changing because God loves us and he's got a plan for us. And it's, I believe it's an incumbent upon Christ, true Christ followers today that to say publicly, gently, lovingly, but clearly that with all due respect, those who teach that God is done with the Jews, that he's rejected the Jews, that they have no rights, particularly to the land of Israel, they're wrong, biblically. The entire Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, makes crystal clear again and again God's amazing love for the Jewish people, his decision to choose Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and their descendants for his very own, and his eternal promise to give the Holy Land to the Jewish people. Now, Yes, let's be clear. We need to bless the Palestinians. We need to bless Israel's neighbors and even her enemies. And one of the messages tomorrow as part of the series will focus specifically on that. Does God love Israel's neighbors? And if so, why does that matter? The answer is, I'll just signal ahead, yes. And we'll talk in more detail scripturally and practically what does that mean. But we just should never accept the false teaching that God has rejected the Jewish people. It's simply uh, not accurate. In Genesis chapter 12, if you've got your Bible, why don't you turn to Genesis chapter 12. We'll start there. I'm going to be moving around. This is not a verse-by-verse, line-by-line night. So stick with me, okay? And if you're here with a a friend or spouse, you know, baby, you do one verse and they pick up the next. We're going to cover a lot of ground. So buckle up. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, right? These are the famous verses. The Lord makes it crystal clear. He has chosen Abram to make a great nation. And the Lord says to him, I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. He's a Hebrew. From him comes the Jewish people. And God says, I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to make you a blessing. And then he says, I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. In Genesis 18, verses 17 through 19, again, Genesis 18, verses 17 through 19, the Lord says, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Since Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation, and in him... All the nations of the earth will be blessed, for I have chosen him. It's the first place where God says, I've chosen the Jewish people, starting with Abraham. Now, I'm guessing that most people here tonight are Gentiles. And bless your hearts. Uh, I mean, I was just in Texas. Apparently, you can say anything as long as you say bless your hearts. And I do actually, in this case, I don't, it's not a slight. I actually mean... Bless you, Gentiles. Did you know that about 90 to 95% of Jews who come to faith come to faith through the love 
of Gentiles. So amen. And that's how my family all came to faith. Now, Gentiles sometimes, probably not you, but some Gentiles think, oh, you Jews, you think you're so special, you know? <laughs> Chosen people, right? You know? You got this special deal with God. Look, and there's a little, historically, there's been a little resentment over this idea of the chosen people. Now, I have to tell you, just flat out, we did not choose this idea of being chosen. We're not always big on it, on being chosen, right? Because historically, that has not gone well for us. (laughs) The Pharaoh chose us. Hitler chose us. Stalin chose us. Mahmoud Ahmadinejad chose us. Really, choose somebody else. We're totally good with that. Okay, right? If you're an Orthodox Jew, you'd say, look, I'm kosher. I don't want to hog the spotlight. You, you just, God, you just choose somebody else. I don't want to take all the blessings here, really. My favorite cartoon uh, series was the Far Side series back in the 1980s. I don't know if you remember those, but you were t- my favorite one was there's two deer standing in a forest, and one deer has a bullseye on its chest. And the deer without the bullseye says to the deer with the bullseye, hey, bummer of a birthmark, Hal. And that's what it feels like to be Jewish. You're like, hey, why do they hate me? Why do they want to kill me? Why do they talk about annihilating all of us as Jews? So chosen people, well, we didn't come up with that idea. It wasn't some PR marketing campaign. God chose the the Jewish people to be chosen, and you're not. You know, that was not, we never would have thought of that. (laughs) But God consistently through the scripture says it in Deuteronomy. Chapter 7, Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 through 8. Moses says to the nation of Israel, to the chosen people, the Jewish people, you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. The Lord didn't set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of all the peoples. For in fact, you were the fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers. God's saying, you're not the biggest, grandest, you know, tallest people on the planet, apparently. I don't know how that plays on radio, but I think they know who you are, Skip. Uh, God said, and I can't even tell you why he chose Jews. Like, why not the Kurds? Why not the Japanese? Why not the Brazilians? I don't know. We're going to do Q&A tomorrow night. You can ask me. My answer is, I don't know. (laughs) It's a sovereign decision, and it's come at a high cost. Well, why did he do it? He chose us to reveal himself to us. He wanted to pick one group of people and say, I'm not going to limit myself to revealing just to you, but I'm going to start with a people, a people that are lost, but I'm going to show love and mercy to them, and as they get to know me, they're going to make me known to the whole world. Through them, the scriptures are going to come. Through them the Spirit will come upon the earth and move powerfully around the world. Through them, the Messiah will come. That's a good deal. We didn't always accept it. In Jeremiah 31, beginning in verse 1, we read that at that time, declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the peoples of Israel, and they shall be my people. Thus says the Lord, the people who survived the sword... The sword has been a repetitive theme throughout Jewish history. Uh, But the people who survived the sword, the Jewish people who have survived all the traumas that life is going to throw at them, they found grace in the wilderness. Israel, when it went to find its rest, and the Lord appeared to the children of Israel 
from afar, saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have drawn you with loving kindness. Again, I will build you, and you will be rebuilt, O virgin of Israel. Israel makes mistakes. Israel is a sinful country. It's a sin- we're a sinful people. We blow it, and then God deals with us, and then he restores us. It's true about everybody. We are sinners. We are lost. We all, like sheep, have gone astray, but God comes after us, and he draws us out of his everlasting love, and he cleans us up, and he gets us moving again. This is the greatness of our great God. But it's not restricted to Gentiles. You know, it's interesting, in the early church, the Jews, Peter in particular, in Acts 10 and 11, they're like, God doesn't love the Gentiles. He's not coming to the Gentiles. This is just for us, pretty much. We can't even go spend time with the Gentiles. But then he's like, oh, wow. I mean, the Holy Spirit does this amazing series of miracles. And, you know, the whole story with Cornelius. And suddenly Peter's like, I guess God does love the Gentiles. It's not like it hadn't been spoken all throughout Scripture. God loved the whole world, and and Jesus himself said it, right? But, okay, now we're in a moment where the Gentile church thinks, ah, the Jews, God's done with the Jews. He doesn't love the Jews. Well, neither of those things are true. God loves the Jews. He loves the Gentiles. And he loves us, and this is written specifically to us, though it's applicable to everyone, in my view, but he loves the Jews with an everlasting love. Now I ask you, Doesn't everlasting mean everlasting? On and on it goes throughout the Old Testament. The God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, keeps talking about his love for the Jewish people over and over again. He talks about his special plan for Israel and the Jewish people. He talks about the fact that he chose them to know him and to make him known throughout the whole earth and to use them, us, to be a blessing to the entire earth, every nation on earth. Now, when we get to the New Testament, what do we find? Does God rescind all this? No. Our Lord Jesus, the Messiah, he's Jewish. Where does he go? To Israel. Where does he teach? In Israel. Where does he die on the cross? In Israel. Where does he rise again from? And to Israel. The first disciples are Jewish. Peter, the rock upon which Jesus builds his church, Jewish. All the writers of the New Testament, save one, Luke, they're Jewish. In John 4, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, says salvation is from the Jews. In Matthew 10, verse 6, our Lord Jesus, sent, Lord Jesus Christ sent his disciples, quote, to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. I'm going too fast. I know you're not writing all this stuff down. I, that's what the CD is for. <laughs> In Romans chapter 9, you might want to turn to Romans. That would be good. And I'll take a sip of water. In Romans chapter 9, actually 9, 10, and 11, I encourage you to spend time just meditating, reading, meditating, memorizing even the wonderful, powerful passages in the book of Romans, particularly in chapters 9, 10, and 11. Now, in Romans 9, verses 4 and 5, the Apostle Paul reminds us of the enormous debt that the church worldwide owes to the Jewish people and to the Israelites. Quote, to whom belong the adoption as sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises. 
Who's our, the Jewish people, they had the fathers from whom the Messiah came according to the flesh who is over all God blessed forever. Now he, now Paul walks through to that Gentile church. Listen, listen. Yeah, the Jews are not as warm and receptive to this gospel message as we would hope at this moment in time. But remember, we owe them so much. The entire scriptures came through them. The Messiah came through them. And this is a powerful point that he makes to the church at Rome. Then, of course, in Romans 10, 1, the Apostle Paul says, Brothers, my heart's desire and my prayer for them, for the Jewish people, is for their salvation. You don't hear in the Apostle Paul, well, you know, thank God we've got the church at Rome now because, you know, it's ixnay on the Jews. God's done. It's geshvinto. It's over. Kaput. There's no effect of the promises that were made once to the Jewish people today. So let's just cut them loose and move on with our lives. That is not the message. It's just the opposite. And when you look at the last book of the Bible, well, actually, let me stop there. Go back to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. Dare I skip over maybe the most important verses on this topic. Romans chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. Paul says, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? Now, what's the context? His people, he's talking about the chosen people. He's talking about the Jewish people. He says, God has not rejected them, has he? Now, if he'd left it there, perhaps the church at Rome and elsewhere would have gone, of course he did. But he, Paul doesn't allow that. The Holy Spirit doesn't allow it. Writing in the power of the Holy Spirit, Paul writes, may it never be. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Yes, according to the Bible, the Jewish people are the chosen people. But, this is important but here. But, just because God has chosen the Jews, that's not enough. We, as Jews, have to choose him back. We didn't get some special deal where we get to go to heaven and get salvation and the Holy Spirit and all the promises without following what the Lord teaches from Genesis to Revelation. It's not like we have some special deal that abrogates the gospel, that circumvents all that the Jewish Messiah came to teach and then die and rise again. Just because we got chosen, that's not enough. We have to choose him back. And that's what the scriptures say from the beginning to the end. Let's just pick Deuteronomy, for example. Deuteronomy chapter 30. In Deuteronomy 30, verses 19 through 20, this is what the Lord says. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today. The Jewish people are hearing a little bit of pushback and from the Lord. And the Lord says, listen, I've set before you life and death. The blessing and the curse. So, choose life. Choose life in order that you may live, you and your descendants. By loving the Lord your God, by obeying his voice, and by holding fast to him. 
For this is your life and the length of your days, that you may live in the land which the Lord swore to your forefathers, or to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob to give to them. In one passage, two verses, look at how much theology is there. The Lord's saying to the Jewish people, look, I've chosen you, but you've got to make a choice between life and death, between eternal blessings and eternal curses. It's not enough that God chooses us as Jews. We have to choose him back. And when we do that, what what are we doing? We're loving him. We're choosing to love him and obey him and hold fast to him. And then Jews are then called back to the land of Israel to live there and are blessed. Now, Jesus makes this clear again and again. In John 14, verse 6, famous passage, you know it. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one can come to the Father except through me. Who was he talking to? The Jews. Not only, again, we read in Jeremiah, and we'll talk about this in in another message, but Jeremiah, the Lord says to him that it's not enough for the Messiah just to come to the house of Israel. He's going to be a light to the nations, right? And back to Genesis. God said, I'm going to bless you Jewish people, but I'm going to make you a blessing to the nations. Through you is going to be the word and through the Messiah. Everyone gets access. But Jesus said clearly, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And what did the Lord say to the nation of Israel? Choose life. Choose Yeshua. Choose Jesus. John 1.12, but as many as received him, Jesus, the Messiah, who, as many as received him who said, yes, I choose you, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Hi, this is Carl Muller, Executive Director of the Joshua Fund. I don't know about you, but I love to have someone to talk to after I've learned something new. If you're the same, share this podcast with a friend or family member and discuss together the many ways God is moving in the epicenter. From all of us at Inside the Epicenter with Joel Rosenberg, thank you. We have to see the totality of this. On the one hand, There are elements within the church worldwide that are saying, God's done with the Jews. He didn't choose them, or if he did once, it's over. That's biblically false. At the other extreme are those who are saying, yeah, God chose the Jews. They got a special deal. They don't even have to believe in Jesus. Just whatever. That is not scriptural by any any measure. Turn with me for a moment to Acts, if you're still with me. Acts chapter 2. Now this is a moment where Jesus has just gone back to heaven. He sent his Holy Spirit. Peter, a Jew, is speaking to the Jewish people in Jerusalem. And what does he say? I'm not going to do the whole sermon tonight, but starting in verse 36. Therefore, therefore in light of all the gospel message that Peter has just presented in multiple languages to everyone that is listening from all over the world, all over the epicenter. Therefore, in light of that message, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him, Jesus, Yeshua, both Lord and Messiah, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, why would Peter say that or bother to? Why would the Holy Spirit say it through him if it wasn't necessary. 
If either A, God was done with the Jews, why preach the gospel to them? Or if they had some other special deal, well, what's the point? Let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Messiah, this Jesus, whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart, and they said, they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent, turn around. Get off your way of going on your own, your own th- the way you think it's all going to be good without Jesus. No, 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 turn around and receive Jesus. Choose him. And let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus, the Messiah, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children. Again, critical text there in terms of, the, oh no, God's done with the Jews. Oh no, well how do you justify this verse? The promise, what? The promise of salvation. The promise of the Holy Spirit. The promise not only of living with God forever, but him living inside you now. It's for you and your children and all who are far off, meaning the Gentiles too. As many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, Peter solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. I think that's a good word for today. And so then, those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. The church sprang into being. This is good news. This is really, really good news, particularly as a Rosenberg, but I think for you too. You know, more Jewish people are coming to faith in the last four decades than at any other time since this first century. Not just Jews alone. We're going to be talking tomorrow about how more Muslims are coming to faith in Jesus as the Savior, Jesus as the Messiah, than at any other time in 14 centuries of Islam. God is moving powerfully. So shouldn't the true followers of Jesus Christ truly love our Jewish brothers and sisters, those who are believers, with God's everlasting, unconditional love? Shouldn't we encourage them, strengthen them in the faith? And by the same token, shouldn't true followers of Jesus Christ bless Jews who are not believers? And to love them and encourage them and bless them with God's everlasting, unconditional love. The love of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Shouldn't we reaffirm God's love for them? Shouldn't we affirm and reaffirm God's special plan and purpose for them? Not special plan and purpose around the gospel— but that he does have a plan, that he is drawing Israel, the Jews, back to the nation of Israel. It's one of the extraordinary prophecies. And again, we're going to pick this up in the service in the morning. The land was given to the Jewish people, and yes, the Jews were kicked out for a while. We'll talk about it. Well, were those promises conditional or unconditional? Today we're, tonight we're sort of establishing this is an unconditional love of God for the Jewish people. He chose them. He hasn't rejected them. Some of us have rejected him, but he has not rejected us. And now, as we get to the final stages of history, the totality of Bible prophecy tells us Israel's going to become a country again. Check. Jews are going to start coming back to the Holy Land after centuries of exile. Check. And when that happens, we're going to start to see more Jewish people whose hearts return to the Lord himself. And we're beginning to see that happen. You know, in Israel, there were only 23 or so known Jewish followers of Jesus in 1948 when the country was prophetically reborn. Two dozen people, like those rows. 
in the whole country of Israel. Today, there are more than 15,000 Jewish believers in Jesus. Now, in a country of some 6 million Jews, it's not enough. But it's starting to move in the right direction. And it's consistent with Bible prophecy, Ezekiel 37, that says in the last days, Israel will be physically restored first. That's the first prophecy. And then the second prophecy is God will start to breathe life into the Jewish people. And that's what we're seeing happen. When I was born in April of 1967, there were maybe 2,000 Jewish followers in Jesus, followers of Jesus, on the entire planet. 2,000 in 1967. Today, estimates vary, but somewhere between two and 300,000 Jewish believers in Jesus. The curtain is going up. The stage is being set for the return of the Messiah. And he doesn't want anyone to perish. He wants to give everyone the chance. And I couldn't be more excited, personally, and I hope that you are too. But this is a battle. It's a battle. Okay, radical Islam, that's a big threat. We'll talk about that tomorrow. Replacement theology, that's an enormous threat because on the one hand, you know, you sort of don't expect radical Muslims who believe the 12th Imam is coming and they're supposed to fire missiles and wipe out Israel. I'm not saying that's all Muslims, but, but that set that are running Iran right now and their key allies, we kind of expect them to want to annihilate Israel. Not that we, you know, of course we oppose it, but we sort of expect that. But the church, that there are people saying publicly and believing privately that God is done with the Jewish people, that he's got no plan and purpose for the nation of Israel. That, see, bad theology leads to bad consequences. People are cutting Israel loose. People are abandoning Israel. Uh, Anti-Semitism is rising because when church leaders, I mean, it's one thing radical Muslims, but when people who say they are followers of Christ say God is done with the Jews, that he's rejected them, what is a lay person supposed to think? Well, I guess he has. Where did Luther's theology on the Jews take him? Bad, bad places. He said they're, God's done with them. He's rejected them. Therefore, and he came up with all kinds of horrifying therefores that Hitler then picked up on and said, well, if Luther thought it, now be clear, Hitler was not a Christian. He hated Christ. He hated the church. He persecuted the church and destroyed them wherever he could. But he used these flawed, horrific teachings of a otherwise powerful church reformer, church leader, to justify evil we can barely imagine. And this will happen again unless the church battles this lovingly, firmly, but powerfully in the power of the Holy Spirit. Turn with me for the last section tonight to Joel chapter 2, the real book of Joel. You know, Joel, you know, the prophet Joel. I just run a nonprofit, but in Joel chapter 2, uh, some interesting verses for us to tie this up tonight. In Joel chapter 2, verse 1, well, the whole book of Joel is pretty powerful. It's my favorite book. You, you might have guessed that. Now, I have to say, you know, you say, well, that's, of course, because Joel, you know, my mom was, uh, well, first they thought I was going to be a girl, so that was, would have messed up the whole Joel thing. And then I was just about to be named Lincoln, and then at the last moment, my mom, who, we don't know why she said this, because there's no Joels in our family, suddenly said, no, his name's supposed to be Joel. But I think, thank God they didn't call me Lincoln. I mean, uh, stovepipe hat and the, the beard, and I would have been a short Lincoln. And, you know, he, uh, people, my friends would have called me the missing link. It would have been so bad at, at so many levels. Anyway, it's my favorite book. And uh, in Joel chapter 2, it says, verse 1, Blow a trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm on my holy mountain. 
let all the inhabitants of the land tremble for the day of the Lord is coming. Surely it is near. When you go through this passage, it's very powerful. God wants, and this is an end times prophecy, the entire book of Joel deals with events that are coming, that are future, as, as we get closer to the literal day of the Lord, the return, the physical second coming, the literal second coming of Jesus Christ to earth. That's the day of the Lord and all the events that lead up to it. And the Lord himself wants the nation of Israel and her neighbors and the world, but certainly all the inhabitants in the land of Israel to know that the Lord is coming and he's coming soon, especially as events start happening that help us know, wow, we're really getting close. Now, as you go through that, you see what does the Lord tell the people who believe in this, who, who study the word of God, who believe the word of God, who follow the word of God, who teach the word of God, what are we supposed to be doing as we get closer to the day of the Lord? Well, one, we're supposed to let everyone in Israel know. Second, uh, and again, just for time's sake, verse 12, yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, weeping, and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Now return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious. He's compassionate. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in loving kindness. And who knows whether he'll not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him. This, you know, as we tell the world that Jesus is coming, that the Lord is coming and that day is getting closer, we're also supposed to be repenting ourselves. Because how can we truly have an effect, a positive effect, to show the love of Jesus in real and practical ways, or share the love of Jesus by teaching the word and preaching the gospel, unless we are on our knees, on our faces before the Lord, setting aside everything, everyone, anything that would distract us from Jesus. And this is a call to the church. Yes, to Israel, but to us, if we believe the word of God, and we do, how can we not get back to the Lord? This is what he's calling us to, returning to the Lord. And then in verse 15, it says, blow, again, it says, blow a trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, proclaim a solemn assembly, sanct uh, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, so forth. It talks about gathering people. So see, the first, it was a, a, a message of warning that the Lord is coming. You better get ready. Then there's a call to repentance. Then there's a call to gather and to pray. And it talks about how when we do this, verse 18, then the Lord will be zealous for his land and will have pity on his people. Verse 25, then he'll make up the years that the locusts have eaten on, in our lives spiritually Verse 27, thus you'll know that I am in the midst of Israel, that I am the Lord your God, that there is no other, and my people will never be put to shame. When some church leaders are saying, God's done with the Jews. He's rejected them. They're not the chosen people. They don't deserve the land. They weren't given it anyway. At that moment, when the world is cutting Israel loose, when Israel's being isolated, isn't it incumbent upon true followers of Jesus Christ to go up the one-way street against traffic? And what, what if we went to Israel and we worshiped the king of kings in the city of the great king? What if we prayed for the peace of Jerusalem in Jerusalem? We're going to teach through the book of Joel, line by line, verse by verse, three chapters in two days. 
Imagine the power of God's word being proclaimed. Lord willing, it will go by satellite television, by radio, by the internet in English, Hebrew, Arabic, and Russian. By the grace of God, we, we want this message to go to the church all around the world and all the peoples of the epicenter. This is the moment. We don't know how much time we have until Jesus comes back. You know, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 says it's going to come like a thief and it'll happen when there's, people are saying peace and safety. Now, I, I don't know when Jesus is coming back. Let's be clear about that, okay? I do not know. You can ask that tomorrow night. I don't know. But it's supposed to happen at a time when people are saying, oh, peace and safety. Now, I'll just close with this thought. Lynn and I uh, were on a vacation uh, last year with the kids, uh, and we got a text message from somebody saying that the president had won the Nobel Peace Prize. We thought, oh my gosh, how long have we been gone? You know, we, <laughs> we just had missed the global peace that had just broken out. I, <laughs> that's not a partisan shot. It's just we literally thought, what did we miss? But listen, you, you and I see through spiritual eyes, through the third lens of the scripture, we see evil rising. We see threats coming. The rest of the world, ah, they see some threats, North Korea, Iran. They are not thinking this is bad. They, most people around the world think that's pretty good. Now, I'm not saying Jesus is coming back tonight, tomorrow. But I'm not saying he's not. I don't know when, but we need to be ready. And to the extent that he gives us time, don't we need to bless the Jewish people? That's what Jesus, the Lord said from Genesis 12. I will bless those who bless the children of Abraham. I will curse those who curse them. Lynn and I, Skip and Lenya, we know which side of that equation we want to be on. We want to be blessed. We want our families to be blessed. We want to be a blessing. And this is the moment. The church, honestly, has blown it in significant ways historically. Paul says he's, the Gentile church is supposed to provoke the Jews to jealousy. I think the Gentile church has done pretty well at the first portion of that concept. The provoking seems to be going well. I'm not sure it's been to jealousy. This is the moment. We don't know how much time we have till Christ comes. We don't know how much time we have till the next war. So what if we just did what the Lord said? What if we gathered in Jerusalem called pastors and ministry leaders all over the world and said, come, let's blow the trumpet in Zion. Let's tell people the Lord is coming. It's not going to be easy between here and there, but this is the moment. May we be faithful to the Lord our God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you love us. We thank you that you've got a great plan for our lives. We thank you that you love Israel with an everlasting love and that you call us to bless Israel and the Jewish people. And Lord, as we work through this series on, on critical issues facing the people of the epicenter, I pray that your spirit would lead us, your spirit would guide us, show us how we take action points. And Lord, if there's someone here tonight who doesn't know this Messiah, Jesus, who has never received Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior, Lord, I pray that they would make that decision right now, that they would make that decision. Let me just pray for you. If you've never made that decision, just pray along in your heart with me and receive Christ as your Savior tonight so that you know beyond the shadow of a doubt that you're going to heaven. Dear Father, I need you. I've been going my own way. And I'm very, very sorry. Father, I believe that you sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross to pay the penalty for my sins. 
And Father, I believe that you raised Christ from the dead to prove to me that he is the Savior and the only Savior. And Lord Jesus, I receive you into my heart right now by faith. Please come into my life. Please forgive me. Please transform me. Please fill me with your Holy Spirit. Please teach me how to follow you. I don't know how, but I want to start tonight. And I pray these things in the name of my new Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen. God bless you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Inside the Epicenter with Joel Rosenberg. If you'd like to learn more about the Joshua Fund, please visit our website, joshuafund.com. That's joshuafund.com. And there you can learn about what we're doing in the Middle East to bless Israel and her neighbors in the name of Jesus. And also how you can participate in the healing work we're doing in this critical region. For Joel Rosenberg, I'm Steve Ryder. Thank you for listening to Inside the Epicenter. Hello, my name's Rachel Carmen, and I want to invite you to come over and listen to my podcast. It's called Real Refreshment. For years and years as a young mother, I chased after the wind, thinking that the world could offer me the refreshment I longed for. But it was only when I discovered it in the person of Jesus Christ that I really found refreshment. Come on over and join me as we dig into Bible study. I'll see you there.